Sometimes, in trying to communicate something, some things are better caught than taught. Some things are better lived out than said. It's been said by a guy, and I, 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 like, I love this quote, and yes, yet I have trouble with it. It's probably, well, we can't verify it historically, but it's said that Thomas Assisi said, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. The point can be made that you can certainly live out much of the gospel that we want to share. Now, I'm of the opinion that you also have to use words, but um, even with our, with our kids in our, in, our, in our family, we want to we live out before them the truth that we want them to know and to be able to step into as well. There's something about a life lived purposely that changes everything, that, that, that gives a hearing, especially in our skeptical and cynical generation, doesn't it? I came across the story of a Major John Fitch. John was a first lieutenant in Iraq in 2007 when a good friend of his was killed in action. Uh, With a bullet in the chamber and the muzzle against his head, John almost took his own life in the midst of his depression, but he didn't. He got help. He overcame that depression. He went on, served another deployment in Iraq. Uh, Then in 2012, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And it was, it was severe. Uh, he was discharged late last year and uh, now endures chemo every other week. He could just bypass the chemo because his diagnosis is terminal. But he's doing the chemo anyway because he has one final mission, and that's stopping or fighting against um, military suicides. He's been there. He knows what some of his fellow soldiers are feeling, and he wants to be there for them. Given an uncertain number of months to live, he's devoted his time and energy to helping vets battling depression through an organization called Carry the Fallen. He's living out what's most important to, his, to him in the limited amount of time that he has. Also last month, A woman you probably wouldn't know, her name is Mary Jo Hartman, age 57. She was battling to celebrate one more Christmas with her family. She too was being diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Her family members wanted to move Christmas up. They didn't think she was going to make it, but she wouldn't have it. She said Christmas is about Jesus, it's it's, it's for others, it's not about her. And... um, Ever since her diagnosis with terminal cancer, she has continued to do the same things that she's been doing, except, according to her daughter, with a renewed energy. It's like she's trying to do more than she was before because she knows she only has a limited time to do it. This has been her story over the last several months, that she continues to lead two different youth groups in small churches that are near her, has done that for years. She volunteers at an after-school youth center, and she goes to dinner with friends as much as she can. Even though she can't eat with them, she has to receive her nutrition through a tube. And yet she gives herself to this with renewed energy and passion, knowing that she only has so much time left. In our own church family, good friend Brian Epp was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, I think around June in 2010. Now, before that diagnosis, Brian was known around here at the church as a, as a servant's servant. He, he was nominated to serve on the deacons and served on the deacons team because he, that's what he was. He was a servant. And so he served there as well. 
The progress of, of that disease has changed many things in their family, but it hasn't changed who Brian is, a servant of Christ. Brian attends, last count, I knew of two different ALS support groups. Is that still right? And he does that not because he needs all that additional support. He's going to go there and be a help and encouragement to others that share his disease. He's been in the midst of the Ice Bucket Challenge. He's rode his scooter to all the way from Battleground to Bend, Oregon. And he's also ridden it from hood to coast. Maybe not quite at the same pace as the runners, but all the way there where they take it in legs of three legs and they get in a van and they drive most of the way. Brian rolled the whole way. He does those things again to raise awareness of, these, of this disease and how to care for, how to support, and also drive research efforts into this. This is something that God has put before him and put him and his family in the midst of, and so he's going to run this race well. At the same, same time that Brian was diagnosed with ALS, uh, this, family, this is the family you need to know. Um, you need to get to know them. They, they, at the same time he was diagnosed, his wife Jenny was also battling cancer. And so these are two who have looked face to face into their mortality. And yet they've seen past it into eternity and they have decided what time God gives us, whatever time that is, long or short, we're going to use that in his ways for his glories, however, he would have us serve and represent Christ to people who are around about us. We easily forget in all of our days of hurry and flurry that all of us are in a very similar place. All of us are in our last days. The difference between most of us and these three different families that I've mentioned are that most of us don't know how many of those last days we might have. Days or months or years or decades, we might hope. But none of us know, do we? We can't know. What we do know is that we are mortal. We have all been diagnosed with a disease called mortality. From ashes to ashes dust to dust. From out of dust you came, God says in Genesis 3, to dust your fleshly body shall return. And yet, even as we share the sorrows of Job in this broken world, we also can share something of the hope of Job, can't we? He expressed it this way. Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and because he lives, At the last, he will stand upon the earth. He is the living God, we said last week. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. You see, this mortality will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. And death itself will be swallowed up in victory. What between now and then? The psalmist tells us, Lord, not knowing the days, not knowing the number of days we have, knowing what we might expect them to be, teach us to number our days so that we might use them wisely. We might apply them to a heart of wisdom. That's what Paul was telling Timothy to tell the church when he wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm delayed, because I don't know what's going to come up, things come up. I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to.
to behave in the household of God, which is the church of God, of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. Now, the, there's a word in there that I'm not crazy about because I think it gives a, a strange connotation for us. When he says, so that you may know, and he's talking about the church in general, Timothy, I'm telling you this to tell the church. I'm, I'm telling you this so that the other church leaders who share this letter with you, they will see this and they'll know how to tell the church how to behave. And easily we minimize church to that. Church is a place of behavior modification. We're going to teach you and hold you accountable to be good and live better or nicer. To behave. And God will be pleased with that. Oh, that, that doesn't just miss something. That misses everything. That if, if behave has that connotation for you, then let me give you a, be, a, a different word. Some versions say how to conduct yourselves, how to live out your lives. How are we to live who we really are in the midst of the time that we have? Brian can't help serving, even though the kinds of serving have changed, because Brian has been a servant. God made him a servant. God has put that into his heart and he's worked it through his being and he can't help it. He's, he's still at our men's group every Wednesday night and he's got something to contribute there because he wants to build into the lives of others. He wants to serve others rather than be the focus of attention receiving things himself. God has made him to be a servant. How are we to conduct ourselves in this thing called church? And so... If we're going to know what it is that we're going to do in church, we have to know what it is, who are we as church. And that tells us something about then what we're supposed to do. We, we begin a couple of weeks ago asking the question, I think I've gotten a little, little ahead of myself here, but we begin asking the question, what is church? Right? That was a couple of weeks ago. If we can go back to that one. What is church? And we said church was what? One word, church is Family. There's three phrases, three images, three metaphors Paul uses here. One of them is family. We are family together. Pastor Evan said earlier, for lack of a better word, uh, family was how we were engaging before we started our worship service this morning. And I think, well, we don't need a better word. By golly, that's a good word. That's a word God has given us. We are family. We're an extended family together. All right. And not only are we family, but that family is a called out, unique, different. We have been made different. We've been called out of the whole of society. We have been called out as an assembly of the true and living God. We are the church, the called out ones of the living God. And when Paul had that living God, he called out of a society at large, which was an idolatrous society, that society at large served a, 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 a false idol at the temple of Diana. And there's a picture of that temple at the bottom. And the pillar, I think I gave you that pillar on the bulletin last week, but I'm not sure if I told you. I told you where, I'm not sure if I told you where it came from. That pillar standing there is the last lone pillar from the 127 that once held up the temple of Diana. You see, false idols will pass. False idols, false confidences, the things we give our attention to and our devotion to and, and live out our lives for will pass. And there it is. In fact, those, those pieces of that pillar standing had to be reassembled and put back up so the tourists would have something to go to. And a stork has made his nest at the top of it all. Those things will pass. They will disappear, and yet the church of the living God continues. 
This thing we call church is a family. It is a called out assembly different of the true and living God. We are different because he is different. And how is it that he's made us different? Even as the essence of God himself is seen in the Savior, we are different, I want to suggest, for others. We are different for others, and that turns us toward the third piece of that threefold metaphor, the 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 family of God, which is the church of the living God, is also the pillar and support of the truth. Those three words I want to unpack for you. If you're following along in your Bible, I should have told you this before. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. And if you're using a pew Bible to follow along, you'll find that on page 992. A church is a pillar and support of the truth. And what do we mean by that? Well, a pillar is a pillar. This is not a difficult word. This is not one of those magical Greek words where it means something completely different in Greek than what you ever thought it meant in English because, well, why didn't they translate it then differently in Greek or in English? It it does mean pillar. A pillar is a pillar. Now, pillars are used both um, concretely as well as figuratively. For instance, Paul talks about Peter, James, and John in Galatians 2 as being pillars within the church. They have been steadfast. They have been upholding, and then they've been a strength to the church. They've been unchanging. They have been pillars, men of renown, noteworthy men within the church, Peter, James, and John, Paul says. Uh, the, the same word is used for architectural pillars. Um, um, the Caesar Augustus, He set up several bronze pillars, the same word, but this is a use of the word that gives us a glimpse into what it probably actually refers to. Because Augustus set up these pillars that are for around his tomb. He wanted a nice tomb, and so he didn't trust it to to the instructions of his will or have people make it after he died. He, He had it made before he died so that it would be just right. And these pillars were inscribed, they were engraved with all of the wonderful things that Caesar Augustus had done because the Romans believed that after a person was dead, when their deeds were recounted, when somebody described the things that they had done, they again would live. And so if people would keep reading these pillars and keep recounting the things that Augustus had done, as long as the pillars last, Augustus would continue to live. And he wanted to live. It's interesting how humanity has this hungering for immortality. We try to find it in all kinds of wacky ways. But here was a pillar engraved with the things to tell Augustus's story. These bronze pillars all around his tomb. Probably the best example of this is a pillar I included on your your bulletin this morning. And that is Trajan's Column in Rome. Now Trajan's Column is a column that has been, it's about 100 feet tall, um, and and it had multiple purposes, but the uh, the main purpose was to um, show the great things that the Emperor Trajan had done. For instance, it's, it's just approximately, but near to 100 feet tall, just a little bit over, because they added a certain, because they wanted to get the height exact, because when Trajan was building this whole area in Rome called Trajan's Forum, there's going to be this grand new development. You know, we're going to do one on the waterfront. Well, Trajan had one on, in Rome on the Capitoline Hill. And he had to move, move part of, he had to remove part of the hilltop to level it out for his forum. And so to show what a grand work he had done, that Trajan could move mountains, 
they built the pillar to, to the exact height that the hilltop had been before they scooped it away for his construction development project. Look at the great things Trajan has done. Not only that, but he was the champion. He was the victor of the Dacian Wars. And so, so they engraved this pillar all the way up from bottom to top. There's a spiral engraving that goes all the way around it and carved in pictures showing the story. You didn't even have to read to appreciate it. Showing the story all the way around. Up and up it goes. You could... You, you could follow the pictograph. You could follow the story of Trajan's great victories. You could understand the context. He gave some of the background of why did the wars happen? How did victory come about? What were the outcomes of his victory? All of that is displayed in picture after picture that winds up this spiral freeze engraving all the way up the pillar. And at the very top, the purpose of the pillar and its large base this large base, and then the pillar stands on it. The pillar is carved with the message of Trajan, whom it's there to represent. And then at the very top is a statue of the emperor Trajan himself. But that's not it. That statue up there is not Trajan. The statue on the top of the pillar now, sometime after Constantine, the church decided Trajan doesn't need to be on that pillar. It's a great pillar, but we're going to put Peter on the top of it. Now it's going to be Peter's pillar. But nobody calls it Peter's pillar. Everybody calls it Trajan's Pillar. Why is that? Or Trajan's, Trajan's Column. Why do they call it Trajan's Column and not Peter's Pillar? What's that? He built it. How do we know? Because it tells his story. It has been engraved. You see, it has, the, the pillar itself has been marked. It's been changed. It's been engraved. It's been transformed by the very message it's intended to tell. The pillar was to lift up the statue of Trajan himself. And yet, it best does that as Trajan's pillar. It still lifts up Trajan even though Trajan's not on top anymore because the pillar itself was marked and changed by the message that it was meant to proclaim. So there's no mistaking whose column it is. This is Trajan's column. The church is to be a proclamational pillar. We best tell the story. That's what Trajan's column is. It's a proclamational pillar. You have something like that down in Astoria, the Astoria column. It has this pictograph spiraling around it, right, that tells the stories of great exploits and the settling of the Oregon coast. The church is a pillar the church is a proclamational pillar. Our role, our purpose is to represent Christ, to represent his gospel. I'll come to that in a moment. We'd best do that when we ourselves have been marked, when we ourselves have been changed, when we ourselves have been transformed by the message that we are meant to represent. Now it says the church is a pillar and support of the truth. That word support is a little different. It's a unique word. In fact, that word doesn't occur in the classic Greek prior to the New Testament. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament as a noun. It doesn't occur in the church fathers after the New Testament. Nobody else used this word as a noun. Paul simply made it up. Now, we do that, though. We convert. It was an adjective. As an adjective, it, 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 it referred to something which was steadfast, something which is immovable. It's used in classical Greek that way. It's used in the Bible that way. In Colossians 1.23, Paul tells us to, be, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, unmoving. He further defines it, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, same word again as an adjective. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast. What does that mean? He adds another adjective just to clarify it, unmovable. What does that mean? Positively, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the, the word was known, the word was used as an adjective of something which is immovable, something which is steadfast, something which stays there, something which can be counted on. We are to be a, uh, when Paul takes that word, probably because of its use already in describing faithfulness to the faith, fidelity in the faith, he now takes it and says that's what the church is. The church is a steadfast one. He converts the adjective into a noun. The church is a pillar and support. He's describing a, a common thing in a, in a smaller proclamational pillar or something very large like Trajan's column. He's describing what is commonly done when you have a large immovable base. What happens if you make a column, a, a proclamational pillar, and you write stuff on it and you want everybody to see it, but your pillar is only five or six feet tall? Well, you put that up in the middle of some grand hall and you expect everybody to come in, mingle, and everybody's going to see it. But the problem is it's only five or six feet tall. And when you fill the hall full of people, nobody can see the pillar. So what do you do? You take a big chunk of marble and you stick it down there. And you put this pillar on top of that big chunk of marble and nobody's going to move the marble. Nobody's going to push that aside. Hey, what's this block doing in the middle? It's huge. It's a big immovable block. And the pillar stands on top of that and so it upholds it, it lifts it up, and it keeps it from being moved or shifted. An immovable support which holds up the truth, the story, so that everybody can see it. The church is a pillar changed by the message we proclaim. We tell a story having been changed by it, and we are an immovable support of that truth. The gospel does depend on us. Now, the gospel is not solely dependent on us. Notice that it says here that the church is a pillar and support of the truth. Now, the truth, I've already alluded to it a couple of times. The truth is referring to the truth of God's word, God's truth, the word of Christ, the gospel that we have believed and been saved by. The gospel, the truth of God that others also need. Now, just to kind of shore that up a little bit, support that, if I may, Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. John 1.17, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth, the full, complete revelation of God and his salvation comes by Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There is truth. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. The truth which says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In obedient to that truth, a person is saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, in this same book, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. To be saved is to come to a believing, trusting knowledge of God's truth concerning Jesus. 3 John, verse 8, Therefore we ought to support people like these, those who have gone out for the gospel, so that we may be fellow workers for 
the truth. So not not merely Paul, but John as well uses the same thing. Jesus used the truth as referring to God's ultimate revelation concerning himself, which is found in Jesus and in his word. And that is the truth that we support and proclaim. There is the truth. Uh, In fact, I don't know if you remember, uh, was it... I guess just over a year ago, we had Dan Wallace, a New Testament scholar here, visiting for a couple of days, did some sessions through the book of Romans with us. And Dan Wallace describes that article, the little the. Sometimes little articles really matter a bunch. He says, this one is an article par excellence. It's, it's an article that says that this is truth above any truth. This is truth above every truth. This is the truth that matters more than anything else. And that has been given to you to support and to proclaim. That's what church is. We are those to whom have been given the immeasurable privilege of upholding and showing forth the truth of the living God as those who are his family created in his image and marked by it. There's a similar thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul says, you are living letters. He says, I don't need letters of recommendation from one place to another because you are our letters. You, believers in Jesus, are living letters, he says. And he goes on to explain that. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God has engraved his story upon your life. That's called transformation. That's sanctification. That is the the being changed and living out the Christian life in godliness, which is Christ-likeness. If I could put these together a little bit. The living God transforms those he has called to be his own children in his family. And his writing, he's engraving, he's transforming us with a family resemblance that shows his nature transforming us in godliness, which is a likeness to Jesus in our character, because Jesus is the exact image of God. He is deity translated into humanity. We are not Jesus. We are not Jesus. We are not the Son of God. We are not Emmanuel, God in flesh, God with us. And yet God is with us. The spirit of the living God does dwell within those who believe in Jesus. God is in us by his spirit and God is carving his likeness in us from glory to glory by the spirit of the living God. That chapter in 2 Corinthians 3 that opens with, you are living epistles, you are living letters written by the spirit of the living God. That's the chapter that closes with, God is changing us from glory to glory by the Spirit of the living God. He is conforming us into his own image. He is at work in us. God is not interested in our playing games and pretending to behave behave and to be good according to somebody's standard. The living God is working his change in you, which will endure into eternity and is already being seen and is intended to be seen by others. When Jesus said, don't put your light under a bushel, he wasn't talking about your new LED flashlight, as cool as it is. He was talking about that light in us, and yet who, what light do I have? Jesus is the light of the world, 
that has come into the world and is the light of every man. His light in us is what people around us desperately need to see. We are proclamational pillars. We are a pillar and support of the truth. And then Paul seems to go on in verse 16 to describe the truth. That truth that we're supposed to make known, that truth that we're supposed to proclaim to others, that truth is about the gospel, it's about Jesus. I can prove that to you in the very next verse. What is this truth? Well, it says, great is this, indeed we confess, is this mystery of godliness. This confession, this which we agree to, is more than we can fully understand. It's a bit of a mystery. How is it that God becomes human? Well, here, here's how Paul describes it. What he's done here is he's taken a hymn. He's taken a song that was sung in the churches in the first century. We don't know the music, we don't know the tune, but we know the words. And he's grabbed a part of that song and he's brought that into his letter. And so this is an expression of the truth that the church upholds and proclaims. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we know what manifested in the flesh was. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Was that referred to? Well, he was, declared to be the son of, he was declared to be the son of David, according to the flesh. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says that he was shown to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. The Spirit of the living God showed just who he really was. They asked him for a sign, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. That'll be the sign. And when the Spirit raised him from the dead, Romans 1 says, that was his vindication. It showed that he really was who he claimed to be, who God had declared him to be. So he's manifested in the flesh. He's vindicated by the Spirit. He's seen and beheld by angels. He's proclaimed among the nations. He's believed on in the world. And Jesus, yes, was taken up in glory. He sits at the Father's right hand where God has said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will rule and reign. All of that's wrapped up in there. But there's something more. That's the truth about Jesus. But what we may easily forget and he has shared that with us. We are heirs of God. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are in the household of God. We are family. The family of the true and living God who is changing us, working in us a family likeness which must look like Jesus because Jesus is the exact image of God's nature. You want to see God in humanity, look at Jesus. And I don't mean physically. I mean in his character and who he was and what he did. And those are the changes he's working in us. A likeness to Christ. A family resemblance. And as he does, God has chosen again to be manifest in the flesh. Even as he showed himself in Christ, he has determined to show his likeness in us. We who were originally made for that purpose, before the fall, made in the image of God to represent him to all of creation. And God continues to do it still through redemption. We are made in his image to show God's likeness. Not only that, but even as Jesus himself was showed to be who he really was by the vindication of the Spirit, you and I will be vindicated. We will be vindicated 
First Peter chapter two, we covered this in Peter a few, a, a few months ago, but he says, keep your conduct among the nations honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will expect opposition, and yet they may see your good works and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. There will be a vindication. There may be trouble now. There may be opposition now. There may be resentment now. They may ridicule now, but there will be a vindication and they will glorify God because of how you have been in showing Christ when Christ himself is revealed. Romans chapter 10, verse 11 says, the one who believes in him will not be put to shame, will be vindicated. Your faith will not be futile. Your faith will not be empty. Your faith will have its day. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. None will be left. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, then our faith is empty. Our faith is in vain. It will be found to be futile. We have misrepresented God. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep have perished. Those who are dead are really dead. If Jesus isn't raised and our faith is empty. But now Jesus is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who have died. And if he's the first fruits, there's an abundant harvest to follow. First of all, Christ is raised, and then all who belong to Christ at his coming, your faith will be vindicated. I'm I'm simply trying to show this, that what is true and what the first church sang about Jesus, what Paul is saying, by the way, this is also something that he has shared with you. God, as he did in Jesus, is going to manifest himself through your flesh. God, as he did in Jesus, is going to vindicate your faith and faithful service. God, as he did in Jesus, he's going to use you to proclaim God among the nations. And not only that, even as Jesus was taken up in glory, so... We. So these few days, weeks, months, or years, whatever it is that we have, I will be a proclamational pillar. I'll devote myself to that one task. I'll give myself to that purpose in whatever work a day and neighborhood context God gives us. We will say, God, how will you use me here to show something of Christ to these around me? And as I live in the midst of today, in the midst of a broken world, and trouble comes crashing down, and yet somehow in the midst of that, I maintain hope. As Peter said, they will ask you to give some answer, some reason, some explanation for the hope that is within you. If my con- See, one of the ways that, that this transformation in Christ looks like is simply that the trouble that would, would break you doesn't there's still hope because my hope is in the Lord. I trust the true and the living God. What can anybody do to me? And and, and what can the situation do to me? This is temporary, but this will pass because God has this also. My trust ultimately is in him. And so then, even that hope, even that settled confidence in the midst of trouble, even that sorrow that, 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 that is mingled in in the midst of life, but hope is mingled into the midst of that sorrow. Oh, where does that hope come from? Where does that joy in the midst of loss come from? How can it be? Let me tell you about it. We will preach the gospel in life, 
And then along the way, there will be an opening, there will be an opportunity, there might even be an invitation to use words, and we'll use words too. We'll do one better than Francis Assisi or whoever it was that actually said that. It's a wonderful quote because it causes us to think. It gives us something to think about. That I can preach the gospel, I can show Christ even without words, and yet I must use words so they can know him. I'm not just trying to be nice. I'm not just trying to be a good person. I'm not merely trying to behave. But in the midst of I hope, in the midst of my settled confidence in the true and living God, in the midst of this broken world, I want to be able to share his name with others who need to call on him too. You see, the church is essentially family. We are related together to the true and living God. The church is going to be different, and some of the ways that God makes us different are the ways that we show something of him to the people around us. And the church is essentially outreach, witnessing, evangelism is not something else that we ought to do. The church essentially is a proclamational pillar. Having been marked by Jesus himself, we show him, we tell him, to the people around us. If we're not doing that, we're not church. If we're not doing that, we're not living in the identity that he has given us, the privilege he has called us to, the privilege that he didn't even give to angels, a privilege that was Jesus' himself and he has shared with us. That's what it means when we say, think about it, we are the body of Christ, his hands, his feet, his joy, and sometimes perhaps his righteous indignation. But we are the body of Christ to make him known to the people around us. Would you pray with me? Father, would you use us to that end? Father, would we be a church that not merely is a church that gathers, but Father, would we be a church that is essentially what you have called us to be as church. Lord, we must be family for one another. You have not intended for any believer to live in isolation and alone. They are not alone because they're indwelled with your spirit, and you have called us together as family to be family for one another. That we might learn from somebody else, that we might be teaching and mentoring and discipling somebody else. Father, you have called us to be different, to be made new. You have saved us out of sin and despair that you might change and transform us, that you might conform us into the image of your own Son from glory to glory. And Lord, you do that not merely for our exaltation, although you intend that. You have done that and are doing that in us. That is our destiny because you intend to use us to show yourself to others. You intend to use us to tell of yourself to others. Father, there's somebody, everyone in this room knows somebody that needs to know Jesus. Not just to know him, of him as a person, but to know him as the one who died for them, the one who would be their savior. Oh, Father, would you show us how to live toward that person, something of Jesus, and to be ready. Lord, to be looking for that opportunity, and we might tell them what it is that you have made known to us about him, that they in Jesus could also have eternal life. We ask that, Father, do your work in us so that you'll do your work through us. In Jesus' name.